I invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 3, where we'll be reading verses 4 through 10. In this passage, we see an emphasis on the new birth, being born of God, and what that produces. And the thing that it produces is new love, a new love for God, a new love for others. But there are obstacles in the way of that new love, and so we're going to address those as well as we see from God's word. Hear God's word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Today we're going to talk about the new birth and new love, but before we get there, we're going to talk about something else, sin. Yes, today we're going to talk about sin. You're welcome. You can thank me later. That's not all we're going to talk about, but we are going to talk about sin because some form of the word sin appears 10 times in these seven verses. Some form of that word appears 27 times in 1 John, and it appears typically in clusters. In chapter 1, verse 7 through 2, 2, there are nine occurrences. In chapter 3, 4 through 10, there are 10 occurrences. In chapter 4, 16 through 18, there are six occurrences. So this is one of those clusters where John is dealing with sin, Now, there is a well-known preacher in our day who refuses to mention sin. He says that he doesn't talk about sin because people already feel bad enough about themselves, and he doesn't want them to make them feel worse. He wants to help them have their best life now, and apparently if you talk about sin, that somehow gets in the way of that. But what that preacher has failed to recognize and realize is that we won't receive and appreciate the good news of Jesus until we have recognized and acknowledged the bad news of sin. If we think the only effect of talking about sin is to make people feel bad about themselves or worse about themselves, we have a wrong understanding of sin. When the Bible talks about sin, it never leaves us hopeless. It always points us to the Savior who knew no sin, but became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's from 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So when the Bible talks about sin, it does so not to condemn the world, 
but that the world might be saved through Christ. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And as a church, we want to be faithful to proclaim the whole counsel of God, so we seek to preach and teach all that God has revealed in Scripture, including what the Bible says about sin, and more importantly, what the Bible says about the only Savior from sin. We've sung already this morning about sin in the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford wrote these words, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So yes, we do talk about sin, but not in a way that leaves us hopeless because the gospel points to the only savior from sin. There's a new song that we're going to sing a little bit later this morning. It's called, Jesus, There's No One Like You. And in that song, there is a line that says this, there is no sinner beyond the infinite stretch of your mercy. So there is a tension in this text between the assurance of salvation and the actuality of sin. Some English translations of this passage, particularly verse 6, make it seem like if you ever sin at all, you're not a Christian. The King James Version says that the one who abides in him sinneth not. The New American Standard says no one who abides in him sins. But if you're like me and you look at your life, you realize there's sin. We could ask, when was the last time that you sinned? And I know the challenges of Sunday morning in a house that has multiple people in it. And so likely, many of us are dealing with sin as a result of something that happened this morning. Thankfully, I don't have to drive anymore to worship. I just have to walk across the parking lot. But when I had to drive, there were struggles within, other passengers in the vehicle, and struggles without, other drivers on the road. And maybe there was an issue with a passenger within, And so that by the time I got to worship, my heart was not in the right place. Or maybe there was a struggle with a without another driver on the road. And I'm ashamed to confess this, but I will. On at least one occasion, as I was driving to another church on a Sunday morning preparing to preach, someone pulled out of a subdivision. And the speed limit where I was was 45, 50, 55 miles an hour, and someone pulled out of a subdivision right in front of me. There's no car for another quarter mile behind me, but they needed out at that exact moment, and they were driving about 25 or 30 miles an hour. And so I demonstrated great love and patience and grace to them, and somehow my bright lights kicked on, and somehow I got pretty close to their bumper. 
And then as I continued my impatient tirade in my heart against them, it turned out we were going to the same location. <laughs> when was the last time you sinned? There is this tension between the assurance of salvation. John writes in this letter, I write these things, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to have assurance that we are in Christ, that we have eternal life because of Christ. And yet there is this tension with the actuality of sin in our life. Verses 6 and 9 of this passage, depending what translation you use, say that the one who is born of God does not and even cannot sin. So how are we to reconcile our experience with the truth of Scripture? Because if you're honest, all of us experience sin on a daily basis. And so what is being addressed here is the habitual practice of sin. It's that habitual, persistent practice of sin that we do not and cannot do. In the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there are differences in tenses, like a lot of languages, there are differences in tenses. We can go through a conjugation of verbs in English and say, today I do, yesterday I did, I have done, that's present, past tense, perfect tense. So we could say, in all truthfulness, yesterday I did sin, I have sinned. So both past tense, perfect tense, and I do sin, present tense, I still do. But the emphasis is not on a single act of sin, a single occurrence of sin, but on the habitual practice of sin. John Stott raises the question, what does it mean that the Christian does not and even cannot sin? And he says that different people have tried to reconcile that with our experience in different ways. Some explain it by distinguishing different kinds of sin. In the Roman Catholic tradition, there's a distinction made between so-called mortal sins, which are more serious, and venial sins, which are less serious. But John defines sin as lawlessness. He doesn't mention specific sins, and he doesn't make a distinction between kinds of sins in this text. Others would say that what is sin in the life of an unbeliever is not regarded as sin by God in the life of a believer. But there's no basis for that, again, in Scripture. Some make a distinction between what the old nature does and what the new nature does, saying that the new nature cannot sin. Still others would distinguish between the ideal and the reality. Yes, the ideal is that we do not sin, but the reality is that we do. None of these distinctions that people have made seem to be supported in the text. Some, including... Augustine or Augustine, depending how you say his name. Lee mentioned him last week, and it's been said that theologians pronounce his name one way and philosophers pronounce his name another way. He was both a theologian and a philosopher. Whatever the case, he said that to the extent that one remains in Christ, to that extent he does not sin. And I do see a basis for that in Scripture. 
In Romans 8, chapter 4, it says that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I think we can say from Scripture that to the degree that you and I are walking according to the Spirit, we're not sinning. In those moments when we are so in tune with the Holy Spirit and walking according to the Holy Spirit, we're not sinning. But that explanation does not address what John writes about in verse 9, where he says that no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. He cannot keep on sinning because he's born of God. So that may explain part of the issue, but not the full thing. Still others have made a distinction between willful or deliberate sin and involuntary sin. And so you might run into believers who will say, well, since I came to faith in Christ, I've never sinned deliberately. Or if I have, it's only been less than a handful of times. I can count them on one hand. That's just not being honest. Because Jesus intensified our understanding of sin. He didn't just leave it at the letter of the law, committing murder with actually taking the physical life of someone, committing adultery, actually committing a sexual immoral, sexually immoral act. He talked about matters of the heart, like lust and anger and greed and covetousness. So we can't satisfy this tension by appealing to willful sins versus involuntary sins. But Stott offers a seventh explanation, and that would be that the sin a Christian does, does not and cannot do is persistent and habitual sin. And I believe that's supported by the text because in the Greek language, the present tense of a verb indicates ongoing action in the present. And so I think the English Standard Version is right to translate verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. And verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. The idea is ongoing action in the present. It's persistent and habitual sin that is incompatible and even impossible for the one who's born of God. So the emphasis in this text is not on perfection, as if we on this earth would someday attain sinless perfection, but rather it's on direction, or as Lee talked about last Sunday, trajectory. You can think about direction, you can think about trajectory and how that impacts different endeavors. Maybe you've seen those images of bridge builders who are building a span from two sides that span a body of water, and they get to the middle and they're almost to putting the parts together, but they don't meet up. The trajectory was off just a little bit, and now they've got a real mess on their hands. What God is talking about in this passage is the trajectory of our lives, the direction of our lives. He's not talking about sinless perfection. In order to understand what's being taught in this text, we need to have a right understanding of sin. And we see in verse 4 that sin is lawlessness. Now, I don't believe that John is emphasizing the breaking of a particular law or even the Mosaic law as a whole. 
but rather saying that sin is an attitude of rebellion against God. It's a lawless attitude against God. We've seen from scripture before that sin is a falling short of the mark. It's a falling short of the requirements of God's law, but it's also a transgression, transgression, a crossing of the boundary that God has placed before us. It's both what we have done and what we have left undone. It can be characterized as sins of omission, what we've failed to do, and sins of commission that we commit. So the truth of the matter is that we have not loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. So in order to understand sin correctly, we need to view it from a biblical perspective. And typically we view it from a human perspective and we tend to minimize our sin by comparing ourselves to others and saying, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I haven't done something as bad as what they have done. The Bible doesn't do it that way. We tend to define sin in terms of its impact on others, how it impacts others. And so we tend to think of really bad sins as those who have a, those sins that have a heinous effect on others. But a right understanding of sin is that sin is primarily and ultimately an offense against God. When King David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Murdered, he confessed his sin to God, saying in Psalm 51 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned. And you're reading that, and you might want to say, What do you mean? How can you say your sin was only against God? What about Bathsheba? You used your power as the king to take this woman against her will. And what about your sin against her husband, Uriah? David sinned against him by having an affair with his wife and then trying to cover up his, her pregnancy and then ultimately having him murdered. Yet David says his sin was primarily and ultimately against God. So David recognized rightly that in all sin, the main issue is that sin is not treasuring God supremely. Sin is loving something other than God with our greatest affection. David had allowed other things to take God's rightful place in his heart. He had made a God out of his lust for Bathsheba. Once he saw her, he had to have her. He would not be denied. Then he made a God out of his reputation. And so when he got Bathsheba pregnant, he sought to cover up his adultery and protect his reputation. He made a God out of everything he wanted he was consumed by these things and God was crowded out of his life. That's what sin does. It causes us to try to justify ourselves. And so we try to justify our sin on the basis that it's not hurting others. We might say, it's only a few drinks. I'm not hurting anybody. Or so I'm holding a grudge against that person. It's not like I killed somebody. It's only pornography. It's not like I'm doing anything to anybody or it, it's just marijuana. It's not crack or heroin after all. And yeah, I called in six so I could watch the opening days of the NCAA tournament, but 
It's not like I stole something. So we try to justify ourselves. We try to rationalize our sin. But sin is primarily an offense against God. It's loving other things with the love that is due to God. And we see in this text the purpose of Christ's coming. In verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins. So Christ came to take away sins. On the cross, he took the punishment for our sins. In verse 8, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus came on a seek and destroy mission to destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil are to get people to sin, to get people to turn their hearts from God to other things. And Jesus accomplished this purpose through his cross. In this text, in verse 6, we see no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So seeing Jesus for who he really is and knowing him as he is will transform our lives. If we're still living in a habitual pattern of sin, it demonstrates that we haven't really seen Jesus for the glorious God that he is because something else seems more glorious and more appealing to us. So John can truthfully say that no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Once you see Jesus, once you know him for who he is, it will transform your life. We also see in this text that the power of God's seed produces life and love. In verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. In a seed, there's life. In a seed, there's power. Seeds can be stored for years and even centuries. There are examples of seeds that have been stored for centuries and then planted and they germinated and brought about life. Sometimes you'll see a a seed that has germinated and it's coming up through a crack in asphalt or concrete. There's power in the seed. Now the seed that is being discussed here could be God's word. Certainly Jesus referred to the seed as the word that is preached. It could be the Holy Spirit, the indwelling spirit. God's seed abides in him. But whatever the case, whether it's God's word or the spirit or whether John intends us to understand both, the idea is that something definitive has happened and so our lives are changed and transformed. We experience a new birth, new life, and new love. In this text there are a number of participles. And if you remember your English grammar, a participle is typically in English an ing word. It ends in ing. And it's a form of a verb that can be used as an adjective. And so in verse 4, a very literal translation would be the one doing sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is literally the one doing sin. Same thing in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, it's the one doing sin. 
In verse 6, no one who abides in him. It's the one abiding in him. Verse 7, whoever practices righteousness, literally it's the one doing righteousness. These are all participles. Verse 9, no one born of God. It's the one having been born of God. Verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is literally the one not doing righteousness. And then whoever does not love his brother is literally the one not loving his brother. And so all of these participle phrases are teaching us that doing confirms being. If we are born of God, then our doing will confirm that we are born of God and our doing, what we're doing, will be an example of the fact that we are born of God. Now, John was writing to a church that was being threatened by false teaching. And these false teachers were denying that Jesus Christ, that God had come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And so John says, Christ has come in the flesh. And so what we do in the flesh matters. So it is true that we are saved and justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and yet what we do in the body, what we do in the flesh matters. There's this tension between those two things. Our doing confirms our being. If we've been born of God, it confirms, it's confirmed by our life. The new birth brings new life and new love. There's a phrase in our culture that's somewhat common. It's the question, who's your daddy? And it's meant in various ways, but who owns you? Who produced you? Where's your, what's your origin? In verse 10, we could ask that question, who's your daddy? Because in, by this it is evident, who are the children of God? Their father is God. And who are the children of the devil? Their father is the devil. So John is offering these litmus tests for us to show how we might know whether we are children of God or children of the devil. And again, it's not perfection, but direction or trajectory. And so this ongoing action comes to characterize a person's life. And so it might be a couple that continues to live together apart from marriage, even though they know that God says the gift of sex is only for the enjoyment of one man and one woman in marriage. Or the person who regularly wastes hours a day numbing the brain with pointless watching of television or playing of video games. A man who every morning relies on a marijuana fix to prepare him for the stresses of the job or who depends on a daily cocktail after work to adjust his attitude before he can face the family. Or the person who goes to the freezer every night before bed to seek, some, seek comfort from a, what used to be a half gallon of ice cream, but now it's either 54 ounces or 48 ounces. It's diminishing returns. That one hits a little bit close to home. 
a young woman who's making an idol out of her children or the young parent who is struggling because they find themselves getting angry at the children. A young person who is struggling with an eating disorder yet loves Jesus. There is this tension between the assurance of our salvation offered us in Christ and the actuality of sin. But God wants to set us free from the perpetual or habitual practice of sin and put us on a new trajectory that leads to final eternal life. And so God has done that in Christ, causing us to be born again. When we're born again, Christ made us alive. When we were dead in sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5 and Colossians 2, 13, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, Christ made us alive. So that's the new birth, and it has a definitive effect. From that moment on, you're never the same. But some of the people who are struggling with sin are sometimes encouraged to just suck it up, try harder, and well-meaning people throw them back on themselves to try to manage their sin, to try to somehow do better, be more. That's not what God does. And so someone who, a young man who's maybe looked at pornography recently and thinks like, oh, I've sinned. Oops, I did it again. There was a song or an album recently by that title. And we think, if I sin, my salvation is gone. I can't be a Christian because I've sinned. This text is not talking about an occasional stumbling, but a habitual practice of sinning, that we have been set on a new trajectory, a new direction, because we have been born again by the Spirit of God, that Christ has made us alive. And so don't throw people back on themselves. The Nike phrase, just do it. The legalistic phrase, just don't do it. There was a well-known relationship talk show host that would end the show each day with this phrase, now go do the right thing. That's just throwing someone back on their, their own efforts and their own strength of will and morality. That's not what God offers. God says the new birth is about a new love. If you've been born again, you will love God. You will seek to obey in the obedience of faith. If you've been born of God, you will have a love for your brother. There's a book that some in our congregation are reading. It's called, You Are What You Love. Others in our congregation are reading a book by Bob Coughlin called Worship Matters. And he says that worship is a matter of the heart. It's about what we love. And prior to knowing Christ, all of us loved basically ourselves most. And we were doing for ourselves what we thought was best for ourselves. And we were seeking to satisfy that love of ourselves with the things of this world. But Thomas Chalmers, who lived from 1780 to 1847, talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. And what he meant by that is, instead of throwing people back on themselves, telling them just don't do it or do do it, 
or go do the right thing. He said, morality won't do it. We need a greater vision of Jesus Christ in his glory, in his greatness. And when we see him for who he is, when we see him as the glorious, good, and loving king, we will be drawn to him and the affections for the things of this world will fade away. In the song, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, there's a, a line in that hymn that says, take away the love of sinning. That's a good prayer. Lord, take away the love of sinning. I love you, but I realize that I don't love you with all of my heart. I believe, help my unbelief. Take away this love of sinning. Alpha and omega B, be to me everything, the beginning and the end, be my all in all. So if you want to put this text into practice, how can you do that? Here's a five-step process that has been helpful to me. It was one that was offered by one of my favorite college professors. He said it this way. He called it aptat, A-P-T-A-T. A, admit your helplessness. Lord, I am helpless against these patterns of sin in my life. I'm helpless with eating. I'm helpless with desires. I need your help to overcome these things. So Lord, I'm acknowledging and admitting my helplessness. P, pray for God's help. God, I am asking you, I'm pleading with you, give me help. I can't do it on my own. I need your help. T, trust that God will help. Once you pray, you've asked God for help, trust that he will give the help that you've asked for. God is faithful to answer this prayer. And then the next A is where the rubber meets the road. Act accordingly. So the next time you're tempted to just sit down and waste several hours in front of a television, say, I'm going to not turn the television on at all. I'm not going to reach for that ice cream in the freezer to medicate myself before bedtime. I'm not going to turn to pornography and live in that fantasy world. I'm going to act accordingly by God's grace because I've asked for help and I'm trusting that God will help and so I'm going to, by faith, by God's grace, act accordingly. And then finally, T, thank God for any and all progress. Lord, thank you that I'm not who I was. I know I'm not yet who I will be or who I should be, but I'm not who I used to be. And I thank you, God, that you are at work in my life by your grace, that you've given evidence that I've been born of God. And I can see it because the doing in my life is confirming the being that I'm born again. The new love that I have for you and my desire to obey you and the obedience of faith and the new love that I have for my brother is evidence that you have caused me to be born again. Yes, I talked about love for brother because that's a challenge, isn't it? When you live close in close proximity to someone, it's a challenge to love them. I've shared probably multiple occasions in the past about being in a male chorus in college. And when we were preparing to go on a tour, a month-long tour in Europe, our tour director, Oliver Mock, said, you 45 young men who are going to be on a bus and traveling together for a month, you need to know this. 
To live in love with saints above, that will be such glory. To live below with those we know is quite a different story. I think of that today because our second daughter, Mary, is preparing to go to New Zealand on a mission trip. She's already been on a mission trip for the last 10 days or so in Southern California, doing dance ministry, different schools and churches and public venues, and they've been sharing the gospel and demonstrating worship dance, and now they're going to New Zealand to do more of the same, and they're going to be living in close proximity, and missionaries who've been on the mission field. We could ask Mark Shooter or Sharon Beal, what's the greatest difficulty? It's the other missionaries. <laughs> it's the people that you have to live with and, and love that are in close proximity because when you're living cl in close proximity to someone, you see their faults in the family, your husband, your wife, your parents, your children, in the body of Christ. We see the faults of one another. And yet verse 10 says, the one who does not love his brother, that's evidence that he's not born of God. He's not a children of God, but a children of the child of the devil. And so we need God's power in order to help us to love God and to love our brother. And that new birth that has been brought about through faith, through the gracious work of God in our hearts, produces a new love. It enables us to love God in a way that we couldn't on our own, and it enables us to love our brother in a way that we couldn't previously. So the question for you is, have you been born of God? I trust that you have. If not, you can be born of God today by placing your faith in him, by repenting, turning from self-reliance, and coming to rely on Jesus Christ and saying, I need your help. I need your forgiveness, your grace to me and my sin. You can be born again this day. And with that new birth comes a new love. May God enable us to walk in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your son that Jesus Christ came into this world, that he took on human flesh. And because he took on flesh, what we do in the flesh matters. And so, Lord, we want you to be glorified in our flesh. We want to be more and more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that the new birth would produce all in us that you intend it to do, that it would produce a new love for you expressed in the obedience of faith and a new love for our brother, a new victory over sin, a new freedom from sin. So Lord, allow us to walk, not according to the flesh, but according to your spirit and see you work for the glory of your name and for our greater joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.